2: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
3: Welcome back. In our Conversations with Great Minds series, I'm really happy to have us with us today Professor Anita Hill. She has a new book out. It's titled Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. It's extraordinary. Uh, Professor Hill, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Oh, thank you for having
3: me out here. Oh, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure. It's an honor. If I could kind of start at the beginning, your book starts out with your story of growing up in a very large family and your mother coming from a very large... Can you tell us a little bit about essentially where you came from and how how you got to where you are as a law professor and a short summary of the arc of your life, if you don't mind?
4: Well, I grew up on a subsistence farm in Oklahoma, northeast Oklahoma. I I went away to college to oklahoma state university just a hour or so from where i grew up and then graduated from college and and went to law school in yale which was you know miles away and in some ways worlds away from oklahoma i think some of the most significant parts of what i realized when i start thinking about how i got to where i am today is really the ways that i had to adjust and adapt in my life to different locations, and even change careers, in a sense, to get to where I am today and be able to address some of the, what I think of as one of the most troubling and important problems in our society, and that's gender violence.
3: Yeah, and, and your, your book does a, a brilliant job of addressing it, and I want to dig into that. And, and speaking, you know, apropos of that, gender violence was inflicted on you by Clarence Thomas. And, and I'm curious about your, um, how, how that experience of testifying, I mean, it, 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 it disrupted your life or changed your life. What, you know, looking back on it now, what, what did you, have you learned from that as well as how, what, how did that experience affect you?
4: Well, it, it affected me in that, uh, you know, there were threats to me after the hearing. Um, there were threats to my life, to my job, to my family, to to friends and their jobs. I mean, I'll, I look back now and, and think uh, about really what a terrible time it, it was and great uncertainty about what my future would be. Um, and and realize how many people, including my own family members and friends and colleagues, who were caught up in it, who, who shared that experience, and, and much of that pain and, and uncertainty with me.
3: You, you um, I'm sorry, go ahead.
4: But no, I, I, I would just say that fortunately, uh, in 30 years of working through that period, as well as really committing myself uh, to something bigger than even the 1991 hearings uh, has helped me to put all of that in perspective and to realize that I am not alone.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, in in, in that context, uh, Red Book conducted the first national survey of sexual harassment in 1976. I believe it was 1973. Was the first year that women could get a credit card or get a mortgage in America without the signature of a man, a father, or or husband, or brother, if I'm remembering correctly? What does that tell us about how recent this recognition of gender violence in the workplace, in the family, in in relationships, right across the board, is?
4: Well, one of the things that that stands out to me is that fact that, you know, it, first of all, it was Red Book, a uh, uh, women's magazines, as they were called that, called uh, that did the survey. It was not our government. It was not, um, you know, one of our, our big research um, institutes uh, or universities. It was a magazine that really devoted the time and effort into understanding the experiences of women in the workplace. And and it, it, we remember that that was a period in which women were going more into the workplace, were um, not being, uh, making decisions or, or were not limited to roles in the home, but were working outside of the home. Uh, and of course, this you would think chronicling their experience and measuring their experience would be a priority for everyone, Uh, but that was not the case. It certainly was not the case that the government put that as a priority, and we still don't have adequate information uh, collected by the government about the impact of sexual harassment on individuals or on our entire entire nation. We do have more information, but we don't have all of the information.
3: You were you were being sexually harassed by Clarence Thomas in the nineteen eighties, as I recall.
4: Uh, It was the early eighties.
3: Yeah. So was there, and 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 I mean, this was just after Redbook just did this study. It's uh, that it seemed like kind of a, a new thing, which is bizarre. I mean, even thinking about it in that context, how how much of a cultural shift have we experienced? From that point, that period of time till today, uh, you know, I know in your chapter on, you know, are the th- kind of are the millennials are going to save us. The myth of the woke generation, I think is the title of the chapter. Um, you expressed some skepticism of that, about that. But, you know, we've got this kind of uh, arc here, this 40 year arc that you've been a, uh, not just a witness to, but right in the middle of the maelstrom. Uh, what are your thoughts on how culture has changed or hasn't?
4: Right. I mean, when you position me in it, I was in school in the 70s thinking about a career um, and and graduated from, finally graduated from law school in 1980. Uh, And still the issue of sexual harassment was not something that was part of a public discussion. Um, So that when I experienced it, even though I was at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for part of the time, um, the 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 notion of sexual harassment as a violation of civil rights had some had taken uh, been taken up in some court cases, but there were still these decisions out there that didn't quite understand the importance of it. Um, the EEOC uh, under Eleanor Holmes Norton as chair had put together regulations, but the enforcement of the issue was not was not, was not robust uh, it wasn't one of the priority issues and as a matter of fact even after i took my first job in law teaching and was teaching employment discrimination law uh in the course course book that uh, i used that was written by women there were really uh, there was really like one short passage It included maybe two or three cases on sexual harassment in the in, in underemployment discrimination. So, you know, it, it was not upon the public landscape. And and honestly, even by 1991, when I testified, there were people who, uh, who said uh, they still didn't recognize that sexual harassment was against the law, that the law had not caught up with People that they didn't even know that they had rights not to be sexually extorted or to have to work in a place that was riddled with harassment, whether it's verbal or physical. So the law was just was out there, but it, it wasn't recognized and acknowledged, and there were very few processes in place throughout corporations to, be, to address it.
3: How much has the workplace changed? Uh, you, you talk about in, the, in your book about how people have reached out to you with a whole spectrum of gender violence issues, you know, from incest and rape to to a, a workplace harassment. But specifically, in this case, about the workplace harassment, sexual harassment. Do you think we're really we have really transformed that? Have we have we won that battle, or are we close to? It?
4: You know, no, even as late as uh, a few couple of years ago, you know, the EEOC did an investigation and um, they d- did a report and found that, you know, the problem is still rampant, that the claims, the number of claims has escalated in 1991, but the problem is still a large problem in our workplaces when you do, when you look at the data, the, up, the most up to date data says that fifty uh, percent of the workplace population of women people who identify as women uh, have fifty uh, percent has experienced sexual harassment and so um and we also know that a large percent maybe as much as sixty percent or even more larger uh, will experience retaliation if they complain. Hmm. But, in fact, uh, a minority of people who experience it ever complain.
3: Yeah, which is, which is all the more the tragedy. We're talking with Professor Anita Hill. She has a new book, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. It's a part of our Conversations with Great Minds series here on the Tom Hartman program. Check this book out. It's really worth reading. Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence by Professor Anita Hill. Professor Hill, you write about your older brother, Albert, warning you not to drink when you went off to college. Isn't it startling that, that we accept this, the fact that this warning is given from brothers to sisters, you know, is given to women when they go off to college, but not to men?
4: Yes, well, it's startling because there is a certain level of sexual assault against men that we don't talk about. That is the common thinking that we have to make sure that women protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And we put the responsibility for keeping safe on our daughters. Mm -hmm. And we don't put the responsibility on institutions where this is happening. Uh, One of the things that's really interesting now is the campus protests around the country They typically are targeting fraternities where sexual assault has been known to happen on their campuses. But the important advancement, I think, is that this generation is understanding that the institutions, their universities, are protecting organizations like fraternities as well as other organizations from any accountability. And that's what those protests are about, and that's what's different. They're they're no longer accepting the idea that, well, if if women um, don't drink the punch, it was, that was what my brother said. He said, "Don't drink the punch because you have no idea how much alcohol is or whatever else is there. That um, you know they can't rely on not drinking the punch or." You know, making sure that they're in their dorm rooms uh, or apartments uh, before it gets too late. So they are are not buying into the notion that they have to protect themselves, that they're uh, demanding that colleges and universities provide a safe environment for protecting everybody's right to have a college education without uh, suffering sexual harassment and assault.
3: Do you think that that's, that that seems to be changing? Is it not?
4: Well, I think that that it's moving, but apparently uh, uh, students are still experiencing the problem. Right. Um, there was, you know, I, I I keep referring to the different studies. The National Association of Science Engineering in Madison uh, did a study uh, in 2018 that was released, and they looked at um, sexual harassment in academic settings in those disciplines areas. And what they found was that this, the problem is still rampant, that it's, it's bigger rampant. in many ways than what is being accounted for by some of the statistics. Yeah. We're
3: talking with uh, Professor Anita Hill about her new book, Believing, the th- Our 31-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. And, and, and Professor Hill, I'm curious your thoughts on, uh, you are a law professor and you worked with Clarence Thomas. Uh, wh- wh- what are your thoughts on him now?
4: You know, I made a promise to myself and, and actually have heard this question over and over. You know, I, I don't study Clarence Thomas. Mm-hmm. I'm not objective. So I really don't study what he does on the court. There are plenty of people who follow the court. That's their job. And there are plenty of us who teach law who don't follow the su- Supreme Court. So I'm not alone in that. Mm-hmm. So, but I would leave the evaluation of the way he has conducted himself on the court to those who follow it.
3: Okay. Fair enough. I'm curious, the way that you were treated by the press back in 1991, and by the public, the threats that you received and things like that, how much of that or how, how would you uh, parse out what parts of those were reactions to your simply challenging a Republican or challenging the, the machine or the establishment, as it were? What parts were related to your race and what parts were related to your gender?
4: Wow. I, you know, it's hard to unpack all of that. You know, I, I think it, they're also interconnected. Sure. And it really is difficult to parse out which you know, part was gender, uh, which part was race, which part was just that I was bucking the tide uh, and challenging uh, the president of the United States and his, his nominee. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I can, I can say that I'm absolutely convinced that all of those were factors um, in in the way that i was treated Um, and i also think that just in terms of the press i did uh, i do think in in the years since then that the press has has come to understand this problem and has shed a lot of light and helped raise the public awareness by reporting on cases uh, in the press, in cases that have been going on for years but never got the kind of exposure that they're getting today. So, but I, I think in, in 1991, most of the uh, coverage of the hearing was about a, a political scandal and the political stakes. Um, very little was about the real life experience, the real life experiences of people who were victimized by sexual harassment mm-hmm. um that didn't come until after the hearings um uh, but there were, the the person was more likely to ask the question what is what's the consequences of this hearing to Clarence Thomas and his career and that, and rarely asked what would be the consequences to me for right. having come come forward which is uh, and and we now know that the consequences were really really uh difficult and hurtful
3: yeah very severe we just have 30 seconds until we're going to hit a break here uh, when you saw christine Blasey ford come forward and testify what did you think
4: you know i was hoping that in fact that we could have a different process and 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 a different outcome quite frankly but i thought that she was being truthful and that she was doing her duty that is to bring relevant information about the character and fitness of an individual who was nominated to sit on the Supreme Court for a lifetime.
3: Yeah, Anita Hill, your book "Believing" is extraordinary. Your life, what a journey! Thank you so much for dropping by today and for writing this book as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an honor to talk with you. And uh, well, it's really thank,
4: thank you so
3: thank much. Thank you. For and, and if you talk to Andrew Young again, tell him I said hello, please. Thank you, Professor Hill. Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is Anita Hill's new book, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. This is from Chapter 4, The Myth of the Woke Generation. On October 17th, sitting at my desk, reading through some of the many stories being shared under the banner of Me Too, I felt a sense of deja vu. A similar groundswell of outrage and activism had followed the Clarence Thomas hearings in 1991, and many believed it would be a turning point that sexual harassment and assault would finally be taken seriously by society and the courts. We all hoped that the reports of long-standing abuses in Hollywood and other industries and the flood of stories they unleashed would usher in a period of reckoning. All seemed to agree. Time was up. Needed to be up for sexism and its insidious chokehold on everyone's lives. Yet despite the progress made over the past few years, it's become apparent that the reckoning that had has materialized has in no way matched the volume of complaints and disappointment is mounting in those who expected me too to be the wake up call our government needed to address gender based violence. The truth is I'm not surprised. History has taught me that it'll take more than mere testimony to solve the deeply embedded problem of this form of violence. The Me Too movement did accomplish something that did not exist before 2017. It broke open public conversation about the harsh reality and pervasive nature of gender-based violence. People around the globe, aided by social media and a broadened media landscape, shared stories of sexual harassment and assault that were horrific and familiar. It also prompted a more nuanced conversation about all that falls under the gender-based violence umbrella and how it creeps into our lives at an early age and follows us from place to place. No longer could one credibly claim that the abuses a few had stepped up to complain about in courts were fictitious or overblown. One of the most troubling Me Too revelations was how often and regularly young people experienced gender violence. Survivors and victims of all genders described abuse that began when they were children and continued on a daily basis in our elementary, middle, and high schools, generational wave after wave. With participants of all ages, the movement made clear that gender-based violence has existed for generations in precisely the same forms as it exists today, and that it will continue to be the case until we let go of the persistent myth that one day a generation will come along that will no longer tolerate it. It won't magically disappear any more than pollution or poverty or racism or hunger or any of the other evils that are recurring features of our human experience. I remember when it was thought that the baby boomer boomer generation would be the one who had put bias aside, along with the violence prompted by prejudice and animus. We were the generation that criticized our parents for segregating housing, schools, and workplaces, and for tolerating glass ceilings and pregnancy or parental discrimination that blocked women's success. But though boomers preached love and peace, they largely ignored intimate partner violence in our homes, sexual extortion on work sites, and sexual assault in our schools. It's no surprise that we have now seen prominent baby boomers, including actors, politicians, and journalists exiting the scene in shame. It is true that Gen Zers and millennials are more accepting of LGBTQ plus people, less tolerant of racism, and more likely to say that sexual harassment is a problem, according to public opinion polls. And optimists, me included, would like to believe that a new generation's thinking about differences will lead to a natural evolution of ideas and conduct in our colleges and universities, as well as our workplaces, homes, and streets. We cite promising surveys providing proof that a higher generation of Gen Zers and millennials think same-sex marriage is good for society, that people ought to avoid offending people from different backgrounds, and that online profiles that ask about a woman's gender should include options other than man or woman. We take comfort in statistics verifying that 91% of Gen Zers believe that everyone is equal and should be treated equally. We read articles declaring that because of these progressive attitudes, the youngest generation won't tolerate sexual harassment in our workplace. And thus, they represent our hope for ending gender-based violence. So we tell ourselves that we only need to wait for them to come of age or for a change of the guard. The tipping point where they will hold most government and workplace positions and can implement policies that reflect their progressive values. We also ignore the culture that the 20 and 30 year olds of today grew up in and how it has shaped their thinking and behavior. Many millennials and Gen Zers may lean toward liberal policies and ideas, but a significant portion of them will not and do not. A 2018 Pew poll showed that only roughly 30% of both groups approved of Trump's job performance, and nearly 40% were not convinced that racial and ethnic diversity in the United States is a good thing. Big questions are yet to be unanswered. What political and social events will shape their thinking in the future? And will progressive ideas inspire action against gender violence? Or will younger generations prioritize other causes? More than polls, online activities of teens and tweens offer us a glimpse of how much we can count on a younger generation to evolve us into a society of egalitarianism. The book is by Anita Hill. It's titled, Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. Steve in Bellingham, Washington. Hey Steve, what's on your mind today?
2: Getting back to the abortion issue. Mm -hmm. I had a story. I'm 59 years old and my mother was probably about 10 years old during World War II just to give you a, you know an idea of the time. Mm-hmm. And she was in a conservative small town in Arkansas and over the years she got more and more liberal but she was, you know, a conservative family in a conservative town but she was always very pro choice. And the reason why for her she told me the story that when she was a little girl she saw a neighbor a woman come running out into the street from her house screaming and bailing and crying because her daughter who uh, had premarital sex and got pregnant had killed herself so you know it's tragic but my point is that's the world you know i think today we don't have that kind of shame associated with premarital sex and pregnancy thank god but that's the kind of world they want to bring us back to you know yeah. that's and and it's just terrible it's it's a big flaw in their supposedly pro life agenda you know yeah and I just wanted to tell you that story.
3: Yeah, well, thank you for for calling and thank you for sharing that experience. I, I appreciate it. Thank you, Al in uh, Zanesville, Ohio. Hey, Al, what's on your mind today?
1: Hi. Just one little side note. I kind of took your well, your lead, and uh, I'm running for city council here. In the,
3: hey, good in on the you, town. Al. If you want to <laughs> plug your, uh, if you've got a website or anything you want to plug on the air, go for
1: it. I, I really don't. I just mm-hmm. have a uh, a little Facebook page. I go on. But uh, this, is, this may be out of context, but I was thinking, uh, what happens if uh, what would happen if uh, you could envision uh, Nita Hill as a Supreme Court nominee?
3: I think it would be spectacular. Wouldn't that be ironic?
1: Wouldn't it? <laughs> Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's all.
3: My only caution, and I realize this may sound ageist, but I say it as an old fart myself, is that, you know, the Republican Party has made a religion out of putting people on the Supreme Court who are in their forties or early fifties. And I I think that there's some wisdom to that, although, you know, age shouldn't be a a qualifier, but given how uh, difficult the Republicans have been making the process of putting people on the court, you know, blocking Merrick Garland, for example, for a whole year.
0: But it'd still be a hoot.
3: (laughs) Yeah. It would absolutely be a hoot. Al, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Did you know that there have been eight federal judges who have been convicted and removed from the federal bench? Fifteen altogether have been impeached. Eight have been removed from office since, well, since the beginning. Three of them since 1988, including one judge, Thomas Porteous, down in Louisiana, who was impeached and removed from office for signing false financial declarations under penalty of perjury which it turns out it looks like Clarence Thomas did for quite a number of years when he did not disclose, as he is required by law to do, that his wife was taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Heritage Foundation. That and his perjury around Anita Hill and others, there were numerous witnesses that didn't even get called, could legitimately spark an impeachment of Clarence Thomas. We've got a video about this over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. As Americans realize that the uh, Supreme Court, frankly, has always been partisan, arguably from the foundation of the republic, the Supreme Court has been partisan. In fact, John Adams put Thomas Jefferson's second cousin, John Marshall, a federalist, a high federalist, what today we would call maybe a Steve Bannon conservative, uh, on as chief justice of the Supreme Court, knowing, you know, just <laughs> knowing that Jefferson was coming in. He did this after he lost the election to Jefferson and then had Congress shrink the number of members of the court so Jefferson couldn't appoint people. So Jefferson came in and had Congress expand the number of members of the court. I mean, this is, I, this is how political the court was in 1800, 221 years ago. So, you know, we've always had this myth in america that the supreme court was somehow above it all that the supreme court was you know like the gods on mount olympus they are neutral arbiters as john roberts said when he was uh, at his his uh, confirmation hearings we're just like empires who call balls and strikes we merely enforce the law well we all know that's bs it's not true the supreme court makes law all the time They made law in in uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. They created legal apartheid in the United States in 1896. They then, or 1898, whichever year it was. They then struck that law down in 1954 by reversing themselves. They reversed their own law in Brown versus Topeka Board of Education. The Supreme Court invented this whole legal fiction called corporate personhood in the 1880s, and then doubled down on it in 2010 with Citizens United, and then added to it the legal fiction that because corporations don't have mouths, but they they are persons, you know, and therefore they have rights to speak, how do they speak if they don't have a mouth? Well, you'd think maybe, you know, their spokesman could walk up to a microphone, but no, 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 they can use money. And if they want to buy politicians, that's just fine. So, you know, we've been watching this for a lot of years. And the court goes back and forth. They supported, uh, you know, laws against abortion, then they were opposed to laws against abortion, and now it looks like they're going to support laws against abortion again. But this idea that the court is not a partisan actor in American politics is a fantasy that is dying right in front of us. And for good reason, the last time, the last time the court went down in flames in terms of public opinion like this, by the way, was in 1936, 1937. Franklin Roosevelt, in the previous four years, from from 33 until 36, um, you know, he was elected in the election of 32, he took office in March of 33. And then, you know, he was up for re-election in November of 36. So during that period of time, he got a hell of a lot of stuff done. He got Social Security passed. He got the right to unionize passed. He got unemployment insurance passed. He got the WPA and CCC and a whole bunch of other uh, acronym agencies passed that literally put millions of Americans to work on the government payroll, uh, uh, planting trees, building roads, building highways, building dams. But the Supreme Court in the 1937 session, which, by the way, starts the first Monday of October. The Supreme Court in the fall 37 session was preparing to take up what was uh, called the, um, there was a, a package of FDR's bills that included Social Security. There was a name for it that was sort of like the Resolution Trust or something like that. But the court was preparing to take it up, and there was a very good chance that the Supreme Court was going to declare that, as they had done so, by the way, they had already knocked down a half a dozen different initiatives of his regarding the New Deal. They were preparing to knock this down, too, and it might have included Social Security. And so FDR went to war with the Supreme Court after he won election in 36th and was inaugurated in, in January, I believe. They, uh, you know, we amended the Constitution to change the date. The Constitution used to have the president sworn in in March because, you know, it took three months to get to D.C. back in the day. Uh, they moved that back to January because in 32, when, when Roosevelt won the election, the country was in such a crisis that Republican Herbert Hoover was incapable or incompetent to deal with uh, or unwilling to because of his ideology that we suffered for three months longer than we needed to before fdr came in so anyhow when fdr came into power in 36 he essentially declared war on the supreme court there were four guys on the supreme court led by justice owen roberts i think is his name actually the same as the guy who's the chief justice now he wasn't the chief justice but he was the leader of the four horsemen who were these justices who were you know gung-ho to knock down everything and they had a fifth who would constantly join them and FDR was seen, you know, in October, they're going to take apart the Social Security Act and other things. And he mobilized the American public. He proposed legislation. At that time, I believe five of the members of the court, I might be wrong, it might have been four, but several of the members of the court were over 70 years old at that time. And uh, maybe even six. And FDR proposed legislation that would have allowed all the members of the court who were over 70 to remain on the court but become quote members emeritus, and therefore all of them collectively had one vote. Now this would have gone along with the Supreme Court or with the uh, U.S. Constitution, which says that once you're appointed to the federal federal bench, you've got a seat for life. Today, what people are proposing is i'll oh, just move them off the court and move them back to you know the Fifth Circuit, <laughs> if, where they you know in the case of Alito, where he came from. Um, as long as they're still in a federal court. But anyhow, this was FDR's plan uh, back in 36. And he had huge support for this. Now, the Republicans were yelling and screaming about it. You know, he's packing the court and it's a scheme and he's trying to destroy America. But right-wing editing of Wikipedia and other websites, notwithstanding, if you actually go back and read histories of that era that were written in the 40s and 50s, there was every chance FDR could have gotten this done. And uh, Owen Roberts, under all this political pressure, when the court came into session in October and FDR hadn't gotten his law passed through Congress yet, it was still being debated, Owen Roberts changed his vote and said, you know, the the, the new deal is constitutional, we're gonna go along with it. And over the course of the next few years, all of those guys left the court all of the conservatives and FDR basically filled the entire court with his own people, which is why, I would argue, is why the court you know, overturned Brown v. Board in 1954, or in part of why. But now the Supreme Court, our today's Supreme Court, is picking up a whole new set of hand grenades, essentially, political hand grenades they did this shadow docket decision basically overturning roe v wade now they've got this mississippi case they scheduled arguments for that on december 1st to hear arguments on whether to just end roe v wade altogether in mississippi they're saying that uh uh, pregnancy will be allowed up to the 13th week but with major restrictions i believe it's the 13th week maybe it's the 12th but it's the first couple of months which is a whole lot more reasonable than texas but still it's like with major restrictions. They're going to hear a major gun case, and in this case, this is a New York law that says that if you want to get a permit to carry a concealed weapon, you have to have a reason. Now, it can be a fairly broad reason. I live in a dangerous neighborhood, or I travel, you know, uh, you know, I I have to drive through a part of town where I, I mean New York is pretty lax about this generally speaking, but still they require you to give a reason. And that's that's been, by the way, approved by that. Heller did not knock that down. That's been approved by the court forever. So they're going after the gun laws. There's a Maine case that says that uh, right now in Maine, religious schools cannot get Maine state tax dollars you know, following the whole idea of a separation of church and state, and that the court has agreed to listen to. They're taking up another death penalty case, in this case, the Boston Marathon uh, bomber, uh, Jokar Sharnev. Uh, it was thrown out by an appeals court, and uh, so that, you know, that, that's being heard, a death penalty. And then also there's a a Texas death row inmates request to have his pastor be allowed to touch him and pray out loud with him in the death chamber, which is kind of an interesting take. And also whether Abu Zubaydah, who was the first victim of the CIA's horrific tortures after 9-11, and uh, is still in Guantanamo, because we don't know what to do with this guy, Uh, he's not been convicted of any crimes, He was apparently an innocent guy, but he's trying to sue two of the people from the CIA who tortured him. And the government is saying, no, you can't do that. They have sovereign immunity or some variation on that. And so that case is going before the the Supreme Court. And all of these cases are just politically charged. And it's going to be real interesting to see, A, how this stuff shakes out. And I think these are going to become major, I think the court itself could become a major issue in the 2022 and 2024 elections. But if the court starts getting real aggressive, like the court did in 1936 against FDR, you know, Joe Biden has this commission that's looking into ways to fix the court. And of course, you know my opinion, we should, at least, we should add at least four new justices Uh, to the court, and we should term limit them, essentially. We'll see. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Is this going to catch traction? Are the American, I mean, the the numbers, the the opinion poll numbers are terrible, which is why Sam Alito's out there squealing like a stuck pig. Tom Hartman here with you. Oh, by the way, I just got a note that Owen Roberts was not one of the four horsemen. Okay, if if so, I stand corrected. But Owen Roberts was the guy who realigned his decisions. I remember writing about that in Hidden History of the Supreme Court. Anyhow, picking up your phone calls, Mike in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Mike, what's up?
0: Hi, how's it going? Keep up the good work. Thank you. I am so sick of uh, Republicans talking about money. Didn't I hear Donald Rumsfeld say they lost $7 trillion?
3: I don't. What, what? You know, Donald Rumsfeld's been dead for a while. He, what do you mean?
0: I mean, that when he was secretary, uh, he got up on the podium and, and announced they lost $7 trillion. Didn't oh, no, that was billion.
3: They, they, had, they had lost 6 or $7 billion uh, of cash, cash money that had gone missing, but it wasn't trillions. It was billions. Well,
2: trillion, billion, billion. It was a pile of money you could see it. from
3: outer space, yeah. Pallets, pallets, yeah. pallets of money.
2: Yeah, pallets of money.
0: They lost
3: it. Uh, well, they didn't and lose it. It, it, it got, uh, some of it got smuggled back into the United States by, by GIs. Some of it uh, paid off warlords. Some of it paid people not to shoot at us. I mean, we just used it. It was, it was crazy. It was you know, Donald Rumsfeld's privatized war. Uh, he, he yeah. you know, he was, he was, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working on this book on neoliberalism right now, and I just discovered that Donald right mentor, Donald, Donald Rumsfeld's mentor was Milton Friedman. Milton, he was, he was, they were best friends. Milton Friedman tried to convince, with a series of letters and a personal visit, tried to convince Ronald Reagan to pick Don Rumsfeld as his vice president instead of George H.W. Bush, and then complained about it for years. And Rumsfeld, you know, was so into Friedman's, you know, just government shouldn't do anything; the free market will solve all problems theory. That's why he and L. Paul Bremer, you know, dissolved the Iraqi army, shut down all of Iraqi, most all of the Iraqi government-owned industries, including steel and concrete and everything. And then just said uh and and let them loot the museums and everything else and said oh yeah democracy is messy but don't worry everything is gonna you know magically be taken care of by the magic of the marketplace and and it hasn't turned out in iraq any more than it turned out in chile or any more than it turned out in russia or any more than frankly it's turning out here in the united states
0: yeah i can't believe it um the dang republicans just bark about money 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 and they lose I don't know if it's trillion, billions. I don't care. They lost it. And we want money for the people in America. They hate America. They don't want money for the people in America. Well, I don't
3: think it's so much that they hate America. They hate the idea that they might have to pay taxes to support somebody that they consider lesser than them. I I, I do think that we need some nuance there. But, but yeah, I get it, Mike. And and the hate America thing is also... uh, it's a cheap rhetoric that is commonly used on the right, and I'm reluctant to use it on the left. Liz in Los Angeles. Hey, Liz, what's on your mind today?
1: Hi, I'm calling about uh, the uh, Texas change in the abortion law.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I worked in uh, the Superior court here in Los Angeles and occasionally floated into the child support division, mm-hmm. which which was appalling. I mean, they did a competent job in the court system But what went on with the men is just appalling. Men would have children all Some of them, not all of them, but some of them would have children all over the place. There was one guy, one time I was in there, he had three different girlfriends. He had children by each of them. He brought one of them into court. She was sitting with him at the council table. Hmm. And every time he went back to Mexico where he had a wife, he got her pregnant, and he had eight children down there. Wow. So... (laughs) Yeah.
3: So, candidate for a vasectomy, if nothing else.
1: Well, that's what I think that should be instituted. If you're not paying your child support, there should be an automatic vasectomy. You have a chance to pay up, take out a loan and pay up on it, or you get a vasectomy. The other thing, if they had to pay, if these men had to pay child support from the time the woman got pregnant, and they put it in, a uh, like, a special account that was secured, and then she would get it on the birth of the child and then get continued child support. But if she had sex with three or four guys and they didn't know who it was, they'd each have to put money in the account. Huh. And that's, think, wh- that's where DNA tests come in. Yeah, yeah, that would be later on down the line. Yeah. But I think if they had to pay... I think that would change a lot of minds. Oh, I think
3: almost anything that we could do to add to the responsibility, quote, burden of men around pregnancy is going to work in a pro-choice way. I'm absolutely with you. Liz, thank you very much. Tom Hartman here with you. The uh, Illinois Democrats have uh, filed a bill. This is this is wonderful. This is just so cool. Two Democratic Illinois lawmakers, members of the Illinois House of Representatives, have filed a uh, law on September 14th. It's called the Expanding Abortion Services, or Texas, Act. This article actually has two different laws, and there's another one called the Protecting Heartbeats Act. And... Actually, I, think, I guess it's the Texas Heartbeats Act, or the Protecting Heartbeats Act, that, that is the one that is of consequence. This was filed on September 28th in the Illinois House of Representatives, and it would allow any member, any citizen of Illinois, to sue gun manufacturers, importers, and dealers over any death or injury caused by their firearms. Uh, lawsuits can, uh, to seek damages start at $10,000. So basically what they're doing, what these lawmakers in Illinois, this is uh, Representative uh, Kelly Cassidy and Representative Margaret Croak. Or apparently that, that bill was brought into by Margaret Croak uh, of Chicago, the Protecting Heart Speed Act. What her bill would do is basically allow vigilantes in Illinois to sue gun manufacturers for a minimum of $10,000 if anybody gets injured by one of their guns. Presumably in a you know, non-self-defense situation or a non-police situation. Interesting, right? Well, interesting. Do you think that this is going to grow? I frankly think it's all unconstitutional. I think this Illinois bill is probably going to go nowhere, but, I, but I, I, you know, I've suggested on this program several times that, that blue states should be doing something similar, and, and guns is a great place to start. If you want to get you know, touch stone, what would you call them, uh, social issues? <laughs> you know, into the mix that, that are going to make this thing happen. So a place to start. Uh, last story I want to leave you with or share with you is this guy who is the CEO of the intelligence firm Spavarius, Christopher uh, Goldsmith, who made the point that every failed coup is just practice. He says, I think that what's most disturbing to people is now that it's become out in the open in the public. And I, and I mention that because the the House and Senate throughout the uh, Trump administration, or at least the last two years of the Trump administration, when the House was controlled by Democrats, uh, they would subpoena Republicans basically and members of the Trump administration and people associated with them, uh, including Steve Bannon and say, you must come and speak. And Republicans would say, "Yeah, screw you guys. I'm not gonna do it. And so the Democrats would then send a letter to the justice department saying, will you please prosecute them for criminal contempt of Congress? And by the way, there's huge penalties and you can go to jail. It's a law. But Bill Barr's Justice Department said, eh, we're not going to prosecute these things. Well, now this committee that is looking into January 6th has, has put a deadline that is coming up fairly soon here on you must testify about what you knew from January 6th. And they're saying, if you don't go along with this, we are going to hold you responsible. We are going to file with the Justice Department criminal complaints. Now, whether Merrick Garland will follow through on those is still a matter of speculation. One can hope, but keep an eye on that. It's the Tom Hartman program, helping you with the water cooler wars. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Stop Being Reasonable, How We Really Change Our Minds by Eleanor Gordon Smith. This is from the introduction. Somewhere in the technological belt of California, where the only thing more precisely engineered than the software is the people, or maybe the people's teeth, lives an organization called the Center for Applied Rationality. For the low price of $3,900, the center will sell you a four-day workshop on reasoning, during which participants eat, sleep, and take part in nine hours of back-to-back activities together daily under one presumably rationally designed roof. This year, like every other year, the center will receive hundreds of applications from people who want to attend because, as they put it, everyone I know is irrational and I want to fix them. These folks make for an easy punchline, a good group to laugh at, but it turns out many of us make a version of the same mistake when we think about persuasion. We think we know what it is to change our minds rationally. And the only question is why other people don't do it more often. The ideal mind change is calm. It reacts to reasoned argument. It responds to facts, not to our sense of self or the people around us. It resists the siren song of emotion. People like to talk about the public sphere, if there is such a thing. Then its convex edge reflects this idealized image back at us. Think of the number of programs dedicated to the mind-changing magic of two sides saying opposite things. Meet the press, State of the Union, face the nation. The branding of these things often bakes in a little reward. How brave I am for attending the festival of dangerous ideas. How clever for my subscription to the intelligence squared debates. The proper way to reason, at least according to our present ideal, is to discard ego and emotion and step into a kind of disinfected argumentative operating theater, where the sealed air conditioning vents stop any everyday fluff from floating down and infecting the sterilized truth. Years ago, I used to share this view. I was a champion debater, which was another way of saying I spent my weekends wearing a blazer and telling people in precisely timed intervals exactly how wrong they were. My teammates and I constructed arguments for 20 hours a week, putting premises in the crosshairs with the unblinking accuracy of people whose whole egos were on the line. We weren't bad either. Eventually, we made it to the World Championships in Qatar, where we wore blazers embroidered with the Australian coat of arms in gold and competed in what looked, in hindsight, like a scene in an apocalypse movie just before the purge begins, all of us in matching uniforms on fleets of white buses being shepherded through the desert haze to auditoriums where we would sit locked up together for an hour, surrounded by stopwatch-wielding officials." Debating left me with an attitude toward persuasion that was as precise as Euclidean geometry. Find the foundation, show why it's wrong. Buttress analysis with evidence. Emotion is for decorative flourishes only. Do not expect it to be load-bearing. Of course, I knew you could change minds by appealing to things like emotion or your opponent's sense of self. But doing that seemed kind of base. It felt nobly sportsmanlike to arm yourself with argument alone. It was the intellectual equivalent of turning up at dawn for your duel with your pistols shined and paces countered. It was how you were meant to fight. This perspective began to change after I produced a piece for the radio show This American Life in 2016. The idea had seemed simple. Turn around to my own catcallers, men who had wolf-whistled or made sexual comments to me on the street, and try to reason them out of doing it again. I spent hours giving these men all the evidence, all the reasoning, all the fancy footwork with premises. But after dozens of conversations, I walked away defeated. Over and over again, they walked away from our conversations as sure as they'd ever been that it was okay to grab, yell at, or follow women on the street. These men didn't seem fundamentally irrational or unstuck from reality. In fact, in a funny sort of way, I quite liked a few of them. Uh, One told me he modeled his courtship rituals on the animal kingdom. I'm just another paradise bird flaunting my stuff, he said triumphantly, as though this explained everything that needed to be explained. That's a good line. He made me laugh, but I couldn't change their minds. The experience deflated me, not just as a person and as a woman, but as someone who has always been optimistic about our ability to talk each other into better beliefs. We finished recording in November 2016, right after the U.S. general election, which set up a grim backdrop for a newly found pessimism toward rational debate and persuasion. But when the piece aired, a strange thing happened. I was inundated with interview requests. Could I write a 10 step guide to changing minds? Would I accept an award for the successful use of rational persuasion in public? What advice did I have for talking people out of being workplace harassers? I was astonished. Large numbers of people had apparently listened to my conversations with cat callers on the radio. Conversations that I had walked away from feeling dejected and defeated, and heard instead instances of persuasive success. I think the explanation is that these conversations bore a sort of Madame Tussauds like resemblance to what we think good mind changes look like. I said one thing, my cat caller said the opposite thing, and each of us tried to explain why we were right. I had stayed calm, they had been prepared to hear me out, I had used statistics. It looked for all the world like a rational debate, and the fact that I had failed to change any minds with this approach disappeared under the shadow of the unquestioned assumption that I deserved congratulations for even trying. I started to smell a rat. The book Stop Being Reasonable by Eleanor Gordon Smith. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind?
0: afternoon, Tom. Listen, on your rant about court reform Mm -hmm. and the the partisan leanings of of courts, uh, it's absolutely overdue. I experienced it directly when I was able to create new law in New York State back in 2013, and I got a four to three decision at the state's high court, and it came down strictly along partisan lines. The law was so that individual citizens could sue third-party corporate criminals. There had mm-hmm. always been a firewall between in the form of the second party. And that was the door I was able to shove open. Yeah. And the reasoning by the dissenting justices in New York um, just gave away their, uh, their politics for the, for the... Yeah, it's just it's amazing. You should go read the opinion. It was... Uh, Issued in October of thirteen. The case is Landon the Krol K R O L L. Yeah, until t- you you've
3: called about it before, Erica. I, yeah, yeah. yeah, and and so
0: yeah,
3: I, I'm not I'm not and I, and I don't have time to educate myself right now. But but yeah, I you know here another another testimony. Thank you, thank yeah, you. Yeah, corporate Mary. criminals.
0: Yeah. It was, it was a corporate criminal case by a citizen, yeah. and bought four of those four Mario Cuomo appointees on the court, I
3: would yeah.
2: have never gotten there.
3: Yeah. No, I get it. Eric, thank you for the call. Michael in Imperial Beach, California. Hey, Michael, what's up?
2: Hey, Mr. Hartman, long time no talk, 30 seconds. Tom, please remind our audience about the Iroquois nation who Americans slaughtered handled the situation when they realized that men were in power, only chaos was created, and that only women could vote for the SOCOMs.
3: In, in five they out of the six Iroquois nations, yes. I'll
2: give you that, right. Because they understood that when men rule, it only brings problems. And if you could tie it into the Bible, the abortion situation, and our current gun situation. Thank you, Tom.
3: Yeah, thank you, Michael. Well said.